0: Okay, so if last week we talked about celebrating the gospel, this week we really want to focus on activating the gospel. So just a short recap. Now that we are at peace with God, now that we stand in grace, now that we are justified, counted righteous, how shall we live? just walked through summary of our first part of our study in Romans we're no longer under wrath by believing like abraham we have peace with god we stand in grace god has taken his righteousness and counted it to us how do we live how do we activate The gospel. Been thinking about a simple way to define the gospel so that when we hear it, because we hear it a lot, the gospel, the gospel, and I'm glad we hear it a lot here at our church. But my hope is that when we hear that word or that phrase, the fuller meaning of the gospel immediately comes to our mind. What is the gospel? And our study in Romans has been super helpful to that end in just succinctly bringing down this reality of all that the gospel entails. It's outlined for us some key characteristics of this phrase, the gospel. So let me give you kind of a 30,000 foot overview of the first five chapters of Romans in just a few words. And this is going to pull the gospel together for us. Chapter one and two, deserving wrath. That's us. The pagan who doesn't care about God's word and the self-righteous who only apply God's word to other people and not themselves. We're all in danger. Chapters 1 and 2, deserving wrath. But chapter 3, justified or saved from God's wrath by grace. Deserving wrath, justified by grace. Chapter 3, counted righteous. That's actually chapter 4. Chapter 5, rejoicing in God. Church, that's the gospel. My hope is that when we hear this phrase, the gospel, if we think, what's that? Deserving wrath, justified by grace, counted righteous, rejoicing in God. Now here in Romans 6, this is where we're going to be tonight. It actually says five in your handouts, but that's a typo. Um, We're in Romans chapter 6 tonight. We're going to pick up two more attributes that round out our definition of the gospel so deserving wrath justified by grace counted righteous rejoicing in god romans 6 is going to tell us dead to sin activated to righteousness it's the gospel so let's i want us to do this together okay i want this to get burned into our brains okay so six realities of the gospel from the first six chapters of Romans. Okay, so if you need to, you can cheat by looking at your um, notes on the back. But let's say it together: deserving wrath, justified by grace, counted righteous. Sing in God, Re- sin. Great. One more time deserving wrath, justified by grace, counted righteous, rejoicing in God, dead to sin, activated to righteousness. Did I miss one? Okay. Church, let this burn itself into our brains. This is the gospel. We deserved wrath. And we end with, we have been activated to live out this righteousness that has been counted to us. So here's some context as we head into chapter 6. We wrapped up chapter 4. The Bible gives us some practical ways which believing directed Abraham's life and actions. We saw that all the gospel realities, all the gospel realities, primarily this justified by grace and then counted righteousness are, attribute, are attributed to Abraham by faith. That was in chapters 4, 23 through 25. It says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But we also saw that those realities are not just Abraham's by faith, but they're also ours. Counted righteous, justified by grace. Those things weren't just given to Abraham. Paul tells us like he tells the church at Rome, they're also yours. So he continues, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe, who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And then because all of those things are true, all of everything we learned in chapters 1 through 4, we burst into chapter 5 with a celebratory therefore. Remember this? And there we saw six Results for those who be believe, for those who have faith like Abraham and believe contrary to our own opinions, contrary to our own feelings or emotions, even our own circumstances. When we believe in spite of those things, just like Abraham, there's some results of the gospel. And so last week we saw we possess peace with God. We stand in grace. We have hope in our future. Purpose in our present, and Paul broke that down even in our sufferings. We have purpose, that we possess the guaranteed love of God before we do a thing. That His love for us is guaranteed, it's not based on our performance. And then we saw, we rejoice in the Lord. You begin to get the sense, as you study Romans, that Paul was extremely intentional. Of course, he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God had things for Paul to write that he needed for us to hear. And one of those things is that it is crucial for us to see that chapter 5 comes before chapter 6. We absolutely need to see that the gospel results of chapter 5, everything I just listed, come before the call to righteousness in chapter 6. That the gospel results that we see in chapter 5 come as a result of grace. We absolutely have to see that, not of our works. Because only then will this... Rejo- this justification by grace, our, our righteousness counted, God's love guaranteed for us, only then, before we do anything, will it result in a wholesale rejoicing of God. Because there is not a hint of ourselves. In our own rescue. You with me? We have to get chapter 5. Before we get chapter 6. We have to get the gospel results. Come from belief. Because otherwise. Like Paul said in Romans chapter 2. It's not a grace gift. It's God owes us for our good behavior. And he owes us nothing. So by the time we get to the beginning part of Romans chapter 6, the Lord wants us to be thoroughly convinced that the benefits of chapter 5 come from the gospel by faith alone. And this sets us up for obedience that comes from the heart. Chapter 6 verse 17. This is what God is looking for, an obedience that comes from the heart, not a manufactured obedience that's just trying to get its own way anyway, not a manipulative obedience where I do things and then you do things back for me, right? Not a conniving obedience where I do my part and then you do your part, an obedience that flows from the heart. This is what God is after. So he removes all the ability to earn it. Or I should say, we remove all the ability to earn it. And then God graciously gives it to us. The results that we gain by faith alone in no way means that we are Free to do whatever we please, though. We just read this together as we got started. That's actually called antinomianism. And I only tell you that word because you might hear it at some point in time, but anti means anti or against, and nomi, nomiai means the law, against the law. And it's a belief that because of the gospel, then we can live any way that we want and I wouldn't mention it other than there are people still teaching it today. But like the Apostle James, in Romans chapter 6, Paul is making the argument that the kind of people who possess a kind of faith and belief in God that puts them in peace with God, the kind of people who stand firmly in grace the kind of people who have hope for their future and perspective in their trials, who are guaranteed God's love and who are rejoicing in all of these great gifts are the people who will continually strive to become more like the God who rescued them. Paul's going to argue that. The faith that truly believes that God has been this kind will attempt to return that very kindness to the God who gave it to them. And so again, by the time we get to Romans 6, we should be fully convinced of who we are and what we possess as a gift from a good, good father. As a matter of fact, we should be so convinced that these things are from the Lord and they're so free that we might even be tempted to think, so is there nothing that I do? Does anything I do matter? And so that's how Paul opens Romans chapter 6 with that very question. This news is so good, so fantastic, and so free... Wait a minute, does it require nothing of me? Is there nothing that I can do that matters? I was listening to a teacher that I enjoy. His name is Paul Tripp. He was teaching on Psalms 27. And he was saying that one of the greatest crises in the modern church is what he calls spiritual amnesia. He argues that the weakening of the American church is directly related to Christians misappropri- misappropriating their identity. They've forgotten who they are. And I started thinking, you know, often somebody will say something, you're like, ah, is that true? Is that really what's happened? And the more I thought about it, and the more I considered where we have been in Romans, I thought, this is actually really true. I've seen this over and over in my own life. As a whole, I'm talking about the church that we see in America, we're not engaging God in great amounts of gratitude. We tend towards materialism, true? And which is super elusive because when is enough enough? So we also tend as a culture to be very discontent. We are not making Jesus truly the center of our lives. We plug religion and even church in where it fits and is convenient. And as long as it's convenient. But we don't organize our lives around Christ as the central figure. And we're not joyfully speaking truth boldly with our neighbor. Why is that? Because we've forgotten who God is, and we have forgotten who we are. True? What Paul is teaching here in Romans chapter 6, 1 through 8. Now remember, we have developed already a solid theology of who God is. Okay? So let's not miss, what I'm not doing is putting us first. Okay? So remember, this sermon and Romans chapter 6 is built on the the theology of, about who God is in his holiness in Romans chapters 1 through 5. But what Paul is doing here on the foundation of that teaching is identity formation. And he answers this question, so what does that mean? I can live any way I want, or as he puts it, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? He answers that with a no way. And in some ways, this is structured, he could almost be saying, how could you even think that way? By no means. Shall we continue in sin that grace might increase or abound? He asks the same question again in verse 15. What then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And he answers both of those questions with identity statements. Verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do we get to do anything we want? No. You're dead to sin. It's an identity statement. Can we do whatever we want? No. You're a slave to righteousness. Then listen to all the identity statements in between verses 1 and 15. You died to sin. You were baptized into Christ Jesus. You were buried with Him in death. You are set free from sin. You live with Christ. You will never die. You are alive to God. You have been brought from death to life. You are instruments of righteousness. Sin has no dominion over you. You are raised from the dead. By the glory of the Father, two or four, walking in newness of life. It's who you are. See, if you have faith like Abraham, and you believe God, man, this is hard, Lord, but I believe you above myself. This is who you are. Dead to sin, activated to righteousness. Alive to righteousness. Let me ask us together a probing question Do we, do you really believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that you deserved wrath? but that He justified you by His grace, that He counted His righteousness to you, and that you believe that so much that you are rejoicing in God's goodness, that you've been You have died to sin, that you've been activated to righteousness. Church family, do we really believe this? Against your own reasoning, against your own circumstances, against your own ability to think, do you really believe that God's love has been poured out into your heart? By the Holy Spirit, whom has He has given you. That changes everything for us. The gospel of Jesus does not end with, you're justified, you get to go to heaven, live any way you want. The gospel of Jesus ends with you're dead to sin. And alive, you're activated to righteousness. That we, so that we can walk in newness of life for his glory. To put his attributes on display. So here in Romans chapter 6, God's word is reminding us that we've been forgiven and cleansed from our former Sins, making it clear once again that the obedience that is now commanded, that the righteousness that he is acting, asking us to activate, is not an earning obedience, but an evidencing or a confirming obedience. Paul says, and again in verse seventeen, thanks be to God, you have become obedient from the heart. I have been attempting to run this truth into my own life, and I really want it to run deep into ours, that the only way, church, we can live out chapter 6 is if we're believing chapters 1 through 5. And if we want to be activated in the righteousness of chapter 6, and we find ourselves not doing that, then the answer is not a self-improvement project and trying to muscle out and discipline ourselves, although sometimes that's 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 part of what it takes. But the first thing we have to do is go back to Romans chapter 1. I deserved wrath, but not of any works that I did. God justified me. He counted me righteous. We have to go back to the first five chapters before we can get to the sixth one. Peter says the same thing. We read this verse a few weeks ago in his second epistle, chapter 1. For this very reason, the reason that we belong to Him, make every effort to supplement your faith. This is a powerful verse in light of the book of Romans. He doesn't say to create your faith. He says to supplement it. The word supplement actually means to furnish or to contribute Or nourish. You're not making your faith exist. You're just furnishing it. You're putting the decorations on it. And do that with virtue. And with virtue knowledge. And with knowledge self-control. And with self-control steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent, eager to confirm your election and calling." In other words, Peter could be saying, Hey, my church family, if you're not able to get this stuff in your life, go back to the first part of the gospel. That's what he's saying. You've forgotten. You've been cleansed from your former sins. He's saying the same exact thing Paul is saying. If he were commentating on Paul's uh, passage here in Romans, Peter would be saying, Church, if if you're struggling to live out Romans chapter 6, Go back to Romans 1 through 5. So let me read what we've been considering. We've jumped into verse chapter 6, verse 1, and we've kind of worked our way, and I've been grabbing bits and pieces out of the first eight verses, but let me read those, and then this little section culminates in verse 8. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Lord, run these truths deep into our hearts. So Paul ends verse 8 with, we believe we will also live with Him. And then in verses 9 and 10, he goes on to detail how it is that Christ lives. You've been baptized into Him. You have died with Him. Your sin has been crucified with him. You've been raised to life with him. Your life, church family, is in Christ Jesus. Here's how he lives, verses 9 and 10. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. This identity formation of the first eight verses culminates in an exposition of who Jesus is. He's running, in other words, here's who you are, here's who you are, here's who you are. And he runs that right into the reality of here's who Christ is. Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 3 verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, Many of you have seen the movie, The Lord of the Rings, and I think it's in the third part of the trilogy, Frodo and Sam are completely on their own. The other band, they've been split off from them, and Gandalf says, the fate, Frodo's life is tied to the fate of the ring. Remember that? But here we see in Romans chapter 6, the same thing, but a much grander and glorious. Our life is tied to the fate of Christ himself. Church, you hear that? Our life is tied to the fate of Christ. Our life in God is as secure as Jesus Christ's life in God. Our dead to sinness is just like Christ is dead to sin. Our activation to righteousness is as secure as Christ's activation to righteousness. Wow. Wow. with strength like Abraham, church family, may we believe this. May we live this and walk this out by faith. So with our identity now securely fastened, to Jesus Christ. We are given the charge in verse 11. To activate the gospel in our lives. So Paul says in chapter 6 verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin. And alive in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. All these things are true. Paul is saying, now activate them in your life. You have the power of To do so. But nobody's doing it for you. That's why they're imperatives. We're called to a responsibility. The Spirit is in us. We have been declared dead to sin. And Paul says three don'ts don't let sin reign don't let it make you obey and don't present your bodies as instruments of un- as unrighteousness draw upon your faith paul says act upon your believing a couple years ago i taught a sermon called take sin Seriously. That's what Paul is saying. Confess it. If, church, if you have sin buried in your life, get it out. That's what Paul is saying. Tell somebody, get a partner, a friend. Get honest, bring it out, don't let sin reign in your bodies. You've been saved by God's wrath, don't step back into it by living in it. Get serious. Don't let it remain. You got you must realize that. Letting sin remain is the anti gospel. And just like there's results of positive results of the gospel, there are negative consequences to living the anti gospel. So Paul says in chapter 6, we're going to jump down and then come back. Verses 20-21. through 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. You didn't have to do what God wanted you to do. But make no mistake, you were a slave to sin. When you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Verse 21 but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things for which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. Three results from the anti-gospel. You don't have to be a slave to righteousness. You can do whatever you want. But you are a slave to something. Make no mistake. You may call it freedom. In it freedom. You serve what you worship. The things you love, you obey. If it isn't God, if it's your passions, you must obey them. Or they will. Withhold on you. Three results of the anti-gospel. You're a slave to your sin. The second thing is. You will have a past. Full of shame and regret. And the third thing is. You will reap death. Separation from God. Forever. But. If by faith you believe, it's not who you are. You died to that. Your life is tied to the fate of Jesus Christ. You have been baptized in him, raised to newness of life in him. So Paul in verses 13 and 14 gives us the opposite to righteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Consider yourself dead to sin and activated to righteousness. And so, here now is the result of living as one brought to life and presenting every part of who we are as a tool for righteousness. Verses 22 and 23. But now that you have been set free from sin, and you have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. So you see it? Paul is contrasting these two things against each other. The fruit of the anti-gospel and the fruit of the true gospel the fruit of the anti-gospel, you're a slave to sin. You will have a past full of shame and regret and you'll die forever. The fruit of being a slave to righteousness, of activating your faith in obedience to the Lord, you're not in bondage, you're set free to serve God. You won't have a life of shame and regret, but rather you'll be growing and changing and progressing. You'll have a spirit of sanctification, of changing, of becoming more and more holy like the Lord. And lastly, not eternal death and separation from God, but eternal life and relationship with God. Sin will have no dominion over you. The wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Church, here's how we ought to be thinking about this. How do we continue to apply this? They were embedded in our time together, but I want us to think about the way we live This out is, first of all, is remembering chapters 1 through 5. Remember your identity. Remember who God is and who you are, who you have been called to be in Christ Jesus. Recall the gospel to yourself. Teach the gospel. Say it out loud. You guys ready to practice it with me? Deserving wrath. Justified by grace. Considered righteous. Rejoicing joyfully. Sin activated to righteousness. Recall the gospel. And activate righteousness in your life. Live out of the truth that you are believe. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. John would say, confess it. James would say the same thing. Confess your sins one to another. Get help. Make radical shifts in your life. Do whatever you have to do not to let sin reign. Activate righteousness And present yourself as a tool of righteousness. God, I want to be like you. And in faith, I'm going to do these behaviors. Not because I'm going to earn anything that you're giving. But because I simply am desperate to be like you. Activate righteousness in your life, in our lives. Father, we need your help for this. You have... Already given it in free and gracious loads and loads of kindness to us. We deserved wrath. You've given us grace and righteousness. And we want to sincerely rejoice in you. Remembering that we're dead to sin and alive Because of your kindness to us. You have help us, helped us, and even now by your abiding spirit, who has been poured out into our hearts, you are helping us. You're helping us to recognize sin. You allow us to see it when it comes into our life. Our conscience bears witness with the Spirit that says, You're out of line. Come back to your Father. You are counseling us through your Spirit and through your Word and through one another. You're helping us in heaps. May we heed your counsel, consider ourselves dead to sin. And alive to righteousness, that we would become willing instruments of goodness, obeying you from our hearts. So, thank you for helping us in this and for your continued help in this. And, Father, we pledge ourselves right now to respond to your love, and to your word, to your truth, even right now, and obey, to get rid of these things in our lives that we don't need, that are enslaving us, and rather to serve you with our whole hearts. We pledge ourselves to this, and we can because of the work of Christ that he has done on our behalf. So we say thank you. Amen.